Welcome back to Beyond Prisons, a podcast on incarceration and the abolition movement. This episode is a special one, the launch of a new show series called Over the Wall, the Abolitionist Hour with Critical Resistance. Over the Wall will be a regular collaboration between Beyond Prisons podcast and Critical Resistance, examining the topics explored in Critical Resistance's cross-wall newspaper, The Abolitionist. Critical Resistance is a national grassroots organization based in the United States, working to build an international movement to end the Prison Industrial Complex, or PIC. Critical Resistance, or CR, has been organizing against the PIC since the late 1990s, challenging the belief that caging and controlling people makes us safe by organizing conferences, creating organizing tools and resources for PIC abolition, and developing winning abolitionist projects and campaigns. Critical resistance believes that basic necessities such as food, shelter, and freedom are what really make our communities secure. As such, our work is part of global struggles against inequality and powerlessness. The success of the movement requires that it reflect communities most affected by the PIC. Because we seek to abolish the PIC, we cannot support any work that extends its life or scope. In 2004, Critical Resistance members in Oakland, California began an abolitionist editorial collective to create a newsletter that would generate a critical inside-outside consciousness around abolition and community-based empowerment, and also open up dialogue in which imprisoned people in jails, detention centers, or prisons play a central role in defining the problem and shaping the solutions. The project became what is now called the abolitionist newspaper, printing for the first time in 2005, a cross-wall or inside-outside organizing tool dedicated to the strategy and struggle of prison industrial complex abolition. The abolitionist newspaper, referred to fondly within critical resistance as the Abbey, is sent to thousands of imprisoned people in jails, prisons, either state, federal, or private, as well as detention centers, all for free. The paper remains CR's longest-running project and is currently sent to over 5,000 imprisoned subscribers, mostly in the U.S. as well as some internationally. We also send the newspaper to about 500 paid subscribers outside of cages. Outside paid subscribers sponsor the free subscriptions for prisoners. You can check out the newspaper, what the project is up to, and all of our past issues all for free on CR's website at criticalresistance.org slash the dash abolitionist. Starting this month in September, 2023, Beyond Prisons will host Critical Resistance twice per year for an over the wall episode, discussing the most recent issue of the abolitionist newspaper. Stay tuned for our first episode on issue 39 of the abolitionist on reproductive justice. Welcome to the premiere of Over the Wall. We're your hosts, Dylan Brown and Molly Porzig with Critical Resistance and the Abolitionist Newspaper. Our first episode today is called Beyond Abortion, 
reproductive justice and abolitionist struggle. And it's focusing on issue 39 of the abolitionist newspaper, which was printed in June of 2023. Today, we'll be taking a look inside the issue, discussing why critical resistance as an abolitionist organization dedicated to resisting imprisonment, surveillance, and policing focused on reproductive justice and why now. I'm an African woman who believes in freedom and justice, social justice, political justice, economic justice for all people. I believe that oppressed people, wherever they are, have the right to self-determination. I believe that the priorities of this planet have to be completely changed. Black people will never be free unless black women participate in every aspect of our struggle, on every level of our struggle. That was the voice of Asada Shakur, former Black Liberation Army member who's been living in Cuba since the 1980s after being liberated from prison, talking about her core values. The footage is courtesy of the Freedom Archives, a nonprofit educational archive located in Berkeley, California, dedicated to the preservation and dissemination of over 12,000 hours of historical audio, video, and print materials, all chronicling the progressive history of the Bay Area, the United States, and international movements for liberation and social justice from the 1960s to the 1990s. Check out the Freedom Archives at Freedom archives.org. Fifteen months ago, on June 24, 2022, the U.S. Supreme Court eliminated the right to abortion by overturning Roe v. Wade, the 1973 case that generally protected the right to abortion through the U.S. Constitution. Ending all federal protections for abortion, the Dobbs decision gave states the ability to criminalize accessing or providing abortion care, which expands the scope of who and how people can get ensnared in the prison industrial complex, or PIC. Since Dobbs, a total of 22 states have moved to ban or restrict abortion, including Alabama, Arizona, Arkansas, Florida, Georgia, Idaho, Indiana, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, Nebraska, North Carolina, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Carolina, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, Utah, West Virginia, and Wisconsin. Near total bans have been enacted in Alabama, Arkansas, Idaho, Indiana, Kentucky, Louisiana, Mississippi, Missouri, North Dakota, Oklahoma, South Dakota, Tennessee, Texas, and West Virginia. As more bans go into effect, people seeking abortions have been forced to either travel hundreds of miles to another state that allows abortions or order abortion pills that are prescribed online and delivered through the mail. State lawmakers are cracking down on abortion medications and may seek to prosecute people who cross state lines to get an abortion. Leading up to the Supreme Court decision in June 2022, we were experiencing a wave of escalating and expanding gender-based white supremacist violence across the political spectrum in the United States. This included right-wing consolidation and mobilizations, particularly the January 6th siege on the Capitol, as well as extra-legal and vigilante attacks across the U.S. Additionally, by the time Roe was overturned mid-2022, the U.S. had surpassed 300 mass shootings, resulting in the deaths of black people 
and frequently women, girls, and children. The primary response federally has been to increase resources and power flowing toward policing. Meanwhile, moderate and liberal to quote-unquote progressive leaders reignite reformist policy efforts through a returning call for gender responsive, so-called gender responsive, cages. In particular, we saw this in New York City with a proposal that sought to turn the defunct Lincoln Correctional Facility on 110th Street in Harlem into a new jail for women and gender expansive people. The jail expansion proposal was even supported by Gloria Steinem and was being touted as a quote, feminist jail. In response, PIC abolitionist organizers made abundantly clear that a cage, even when you try to disguise it by calling it a quote, women's center for justice, is still a cage, and that there is no such thing as a feminist jail. While the right for pregnant people to exercise self-determination over their pregnancies has been under right-wing fire for generations, this most recent decision overturning Roe v. Wade and the subsequent tidal wave of local and state initiatives criminalizing abortion have also synchronized with a severe escalation of gender-based state violence against queer and transgender communities. In the past few years, Hundreds of legislative efforts have cascaded across the U.S., criminalizing queer and transgender youth and adults, threatening the health and lives of one of the most vulnerable populations, and criminalizing those who provide support and care. It's no exaggeration to say state legislators are trying to eliminate trans people. Currently, the American Civil Liberties Union is tracking nearly 500 anti-queer and trans bills in state legislatures across the U.S., In 2022, just before confirmation of the Dobbs decision, the organization Interrupting Criminalization released a toolkit called Abortion Decriminalization is Part of the Larger Struggle Against Policing and Criminalization, How Our Movements Can Organize in Solidarity with Each Other. Interrupting Criminalization makes a core point that we must remember in our current landscape. Abortion criminalization is yet another way of increasing the surveillance of our bodies, relationships, autonomy, and mutual aid, widening the net of criminalization and potentially legitimizing other new forms and means of criminalization. Similarly, we sometimes exceptionalize expanding restrictions on abortion and reproductive care as a new or unique type of criminalization rather than understanding them as a part of a larger web. This toolkit also explains how some of the state legislation that criminalizes abortion and other reproductive and gender-based health decisions also deputize civilians to enforce these laws and police fellow community members. This widens the prison industrial complex's dragnet. Even menstrual cycle and birth control tracking digital applications on our phones, on our computers, through social media, can be used in court against people seeking abortions. So Molly, you're a longtime CR member and first joined the Abolitionist Editorial Collective in 2009, before ultimately stepping into the project coordinator role in 2020, which, as you know, is when I first joined the project as an editor. One of the practices that we built into our editorial process that I really appreciate is doing terrain assessments and speaking with other CR members and movement partners when we're determining our themes for the issue and what article topics we want to pitch within the issue. 
So I'm curious if issue 39 seems unique to you at all within the longer history of the project, given you've worked on numerous issues and articles of the newspaper over the past decade. Or what do you think is significant about this issue, given its focus on reproductive justice at a pretty tumultuous time? Yeah, I think that that's a good question. Um, I mean, over the years, the abolitionist in particular, we did focus on different health issues. In the early years of the project, we actually had a column on health and prison or the prison industrial mm -hmm. complex. And it primarily provided for our subscribers who are imprisoned resources and accurate information on health care, different mm. medical issues, that kind of stuff. And that's so important for people inside because medical and health care inside jails, detention centers, and prisons, you can't even really call it health care, right? It's abysmal. Um, people literally are caged in torturous conditions. And even, I would say, service-enriched facilities, right? Like Governor Newsom of California is trying to follow the quote-unquote Norway model to renovate San Quentin and basically make it more like a dormitory rather than a prison, supposedly. Um, and that's still a cage, as, you, as we said um, just a couple of moments ago in talking about the quote-unquote feminist jail that um, they were pushing for in New York. Um, and so, you know, when we, the, these conversations invite the fundamental question of what is health, what is freedom, and what does it mean to live a quality life that's worth living? And so with that, it, it's also really about who lives, right? Which communities have the right to live for how long and how well? And prison industrial complex abolition isn't just actually about prisons and police and surveillance. It's about building a world, building a society that creates and maintains the conditions for life to thrive, right? For our communities to thrive and to live lives that are worth living. You know, so we've actually done a lot of work in critical resistance, merging these what can sometimes be seen as separate issues of health and prison or health and policing. Um, another project that we did years ago was the Oakland Power Projects, um, where we worked with healthcare workers to develop a series of trainings and workshops and tools and resources um, to basically skill up and equip everyday people in different communities throughout Oakland to be able to respond to health crisis and problems, including gunshot wounds or mental health crisis um, or overdosing on certain substances, et cetera, um, and to be able to respond to these very common health problems that our communities were facing at the time and still are without having to call 911 um, or get law enforcement involved. Um, and so through that work, we really started to lean into understanding how PIC abolition is a strategy for public health, right? And it's really about looking at, um, you know, this question of how do we want to live? How do we want to live well? Um, and that then requires us to divest from death-making institutions like policing, imprisonment, and surveillance. And, you know, I, I go back to the work that we did with the Oakland Power Projects 
even though it you know it was it was a separate project it, it didn't have anything directly to do with the abolitionist newspaper um but it was you know a time when critical resistance was really on a regular basis working with health workers to provide resources training analysis and also abolitionist moves that put people and our communities, especially communities most targeted by imprisonment, surveillance, and policing, it put particular communities' lives at the center of trying to handle these health problems that we were facing. Um, and so that 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 way of, of building movement, particularly with health workers is so essential right now. And so I think it's important to uplift um, this example of Oakland Power Projects in this way. Um, and you know, the abolitionist newspaper is really just uh, an organizing tool, right? It's an organizing tool for a specific audience of predominantly people who are currently imprisoned. And we still want it to be an organizing tool that is merging conversations and bridging gaps across movements um, in different communities, in different contexts, across different walls and institutions, et cetera. Um, and so in talking about issue 39, one of the things that, um, you know, Dylan, you're, you're very aware of that we really talked about is given our primary audience and given the purpose of this newspaper, how are we also developing content that is building um, people power and movement relationship with folks who are on, you know, the so-called front lines of reproductive justice work, right? Um, and so, yeah, I think that that's, that's one thing that's just like really significant about this issue is that in many ways we took the approach that we have in other campaigns and other projects of really building strong relationships with movement partners in different sectors to, um, you know, then do that movement building work with us around health or a health topic or lens. Thanks so much, Molly, for uplifting that example of the Oakland Power Projects, because that's a project of CR I find myself returning to more and more so especially as someone who was a high school student in Oakland when CR was doing the Oakland Power Projects. Yeah. Yeah. And so when, while I was not involved in that work, I still find myself deeply inspired, grateful, and impacted really by that project. Um, my people are in Oakland or in the Bay, my family, loved ones, friends. And while CR is no longer doing the Oakland Power Projects, as someone who was a newer member to CR and came into the organization in 2020, by joining the Abolitionist Editorial Collective, mm -hmm. my political development has really been shaped by learning about CR's organizing model and approach to things like the Oakland Power Projects and other campaign and project work that we've mm -hmm. done historically and are currently doing. In particular, CR's anti-policing work has been really central in my development. I was telling this to a comrade in CR the other day that Actually, when I was a senior in high school, I remember writing a paper about CR's Stop Urban Shield campaign. Oh, wow. Right on. That's awesome. Yeah. And again, that wasn't a fight that I was involved in, but I remember it was something that I felt like I had a stake in personally. 
Um, and for folks who might not be familiar with Stop Urban Shields, this was a more than five year long campaign um, to end Urban Shield, which was the largest militarized SWAT police training and weapons expo in the world, it's essentially a war games. It was organized by the Alameda County Sheriff's Office and Urban Shield brought together local, regional and international police military units to collaborate and train in new forms of surveillance, repression, state violence until the Stop Urban Shield Coalition, which was in large part anchored by CR, successfully defunded and ended Urban Shield in 2018. And I mean, yeah, we did. We, we did that. Um, but I, I just wanted to highlight like the movement building work that we did with health workers, right? There was actually an intersection between um, Oakland Power Projects and Stop Urban Shield because the militarized training, particularly domestically within the U.S., was all around emergency preparedness, right? Mm -hmm. um, so really working with the and building from the relationships that we built with health workers to create a people's first response to emerg em emergency preparedness. And of course, when talking about anti-policing work right now, my mind goes to Stop Cop City. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and the recent 100-plus page RICO indictment of 61 Cop City protesters in Atlanta that became available earlier this month. And so when reading through that indictment, something that comes up a lot is this denouncement of mutual aid and solidarity in which they have targeted organizing rooted in these principles through tools of the prison industrial complex and specifically through criminalization. So historically, in the face of crisis, when the state fails to meet our material needs, people have come together to collectively care for each other. We've seen this really clearly and concretely, the importance of mutual aid and solidarity in our communities throughout the world, really, since the onset of the COVID-19 pandemic. And this has also historically been key tenants of, in the struggle for reproductive justice. I was reading this article from the Atlantic Uni Press Collective in which the author lays out how in the late 1800s, when abortion restrictions were put into place, abortion care was able to thrive through organized underground networks. And so one of these networks in particular, the Abortion Counseling Service of Women's Liberation, was estimated in 1973 to have performed over 11,000 abortions with no reported fatalities. Wow. Yeah. So when we think about doulas, abortion funds, and other collective efforts to ensure bodily autonomy, they're often rooted because they need to be in these principles of mutual aid and solidarity, similar to the way the anti-policing work in the campaign to stop Cop City is. Mm. So in both of these struggles, the prison industrial complex through criminalization is being deployed to repress specific organizers in an effort to repress the entire movement. And so what we're really seeing is the prison industrial complex by design seeks to disorganize and repress all of our movements. Mm -hmm. So because of this, just as Audre Lorde famously said, there is no single issue struggle because we don't lead single issue lives. We must understand that the struggle for reproductive justice and the struggle for prison industrial complex abolition are conjoined fights, period. Absolutely. And this is making me think of Stevie Wilson for a lot of reasons. Stevie is a Black queer abolitionist writing and organizing, or rather disorganizing and building um, study groups and community behind the wall in Pennsylvania. Um, mm -hmm. And he's been a columnist of the abolitionist newspaper since 2020. 
And his column, 9971, honors the Attica Rebellion. It actually marks the date of the first day of the Attica Rebellion on September 9th, 1971. And the column itself focuses on his work around study groups um, and study for PIC abolition. Um, and, you know, since the 1970s, since re- largely the Attica Rebellion, a lot of the organizing and, and, and Attica, for people who don't know, was really like the height of what's considered the revolutionary prisoners movement. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's also the time period where we start to mark the emergence of the prison industrial complex as like a congealing set of forces and interests that use imprisonment, policing and surveillance as what was a counterinsurgency program or method to try to stop revolution worldwide. Since then, folks inside largely are having to figure out how to organize and how to be in groups together. And study groups are such a huge part of folks inside being able to gather Um, being able to talk politics and to align values and strategy and figure out how to move together, et cetera. Um, And so, you know, that's, that's where Stevie's work really is um, in, in using study groups and reading and writing and talking with folks inside and talking with folks outside um, and having this over the wall conversation as abolitionist organizing. Um, And for issue 39, he did a really great piece um, that didn't just focus on study, but instead uses the the inside-outside study group model that he's engaged in to continue this conversation around reproductive justice and breaking down how and why reproductive justice is a vital field of struggle for PIC abolition by really speaking to the audience of the newspaper. So the primary audience of the newspaper are folks who are locked up um, in facilities, jails, detention centers, or prisons, but facilities for largely men. So we do have um, some readers that are in facilities for women, um, but a lot of our readers are are in facilities for men. And still, there's a lot of different genders within the gender spectrum and across different facilities, no matter where a Department of Corrections sends a person because of their perceived gender, right, or assigned gender. You know, in this conversation that Stevie facilitated, he brought together people inside and outside to talk about why does reproductive justice matter to us, um, to, to men on the other side of the wall, right? Um, and the reasons that he looked at were all super aligned with why we did this issue in the first place, right? Like the conversation really maintains that both reproductive justice and PIC abolition are about bodily autonomy, right? So to be in a cage is a reproductive oppression, right? You are taken away from your family, your life, your community, your ability to reproduce, and to be a part of society, right? Um, and that that looks, it, 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 on a smaller level, that can look like so many different things, right? Um, that can look like uh, the right to parent or to not parent, of course. Um, and how many people who have been locked up 
have been stripped away of their right to parent um, in the way that they want to, or in the way that their that their children need them to, right? Mm. Um, because of um, the PIC, um, and it's also just as simple as like being able to trim your beard or not, right? Like, like if you're in prison, you literally can't make decisions over your own body um, because of the conditions that you are held captive in, right? Mm. Um, and yeah, I'm bringing all of this up. We really wanted to bring Stevie onto the show um, to to our first episode, and we will in the future. Um, most definitely, but he unfortunately was thrown into solitary confinement, right? Um, for actually some conversations, some emails that we were having about his column. So we're, we're as I mentioned earlier, you know, we're already working on issue 40. Um, it's going to be coming out in December um, and it focuses on control units. And so we were, we were I was supporting Stevie and working on his piece um, around censorship. And the emails got blocked. He got thrown in the hole. Um, and all of his books and zines were taken. Um, so like dozens of books that he needs to do his work um, were taken. And he was largely targeted for this email and also for being identified clearly as an abolitionist um, and interrogated by the Pennsylvania Department of Corrections on like what that means and what he's really trying to do and if he's a threat or not to the security of the prison. And so I bring all of this up because one, it's important to talk about um, what 9971 was doing in issue 39 around reproductive justice, but also because I did have a conversation. He's now out of the hole. He was thrown into solitary confinement for five days. Um, and I had a conversation with him on the phone about what was going on and, and um, you know, it's, it's, he raises a lot that is talking exactly about what you're naming about like the criminalization of groupings, right? The criminalization mm -hmm. of mutual aid, um, et cetera. And so I want to play this clip of um, our phone conversation. And then I would love to hear your thoughts afterwards. I was just sent in the hole for five days in a very hot, filthy cell with no windows, with one pair, I had on a one pair of drawers, one pair of socks, one t-shirt that I had on from Thursday night, and I had it on until Tuesday, okay? Not a chance to wash up, not brush my teeth, none of this. I was in that position, in that hot cell, in that hot, filthy cell, in that position with none of my property for five days because they thought I was critiquing the state. Uh, I was just reading a lot on organizing because they were know the prison hates collectivity, the prison does not want prisoners to come together and on anything. You know, they want to see it divided. And so when you talk about building community, especially behind the walls, that is a, a problem for them. Um, any type of grouping is looked upon as a security threat. Okay, so what type of grouping behind the walls don't y'all consider a security threat? There are, there's not, there's not. You might, you and your celly, that's it. But many times you get a group of people together, they have a problem with that. And when you were doing this type of work behind the walls, you know, um, they really see you as the enemy and they really want to shut you down. And it's not just that they don't want material to get to you. They don't want you to produce anything that can get outside either. And it's like I said, we're battling against censorship now. Uh, they don't want this material inside. Uh, they are intimidating people who read this, this type of material, you know, uh, 
and and and, and we have to do something about that. We can't let this continue. When we think about the agents of the state, the DOC, the officers, the, these officers are punishing people for criticizing the state, the DOC, right? Putting this in the hole, keep exiling you, taking your property and things like that. You're not allowed to read any criticism of the state and you're not allowed to produce the criticism of the state. That's fascism, okay? And that's what's going on here, that I was specifically questioned and it said, you are criticizing the DOC. That was said to me, you know, why are you criticizing the DOC? Like, I didn't have a right to do that, you know? And and this was what it really boiled down to, that if I have been criticizing anything else outside of the DOC, they would have had a problem with that. But the fact that I'm critiquing their work they're, why they even exist, you know what I mean, what they're doing, then it's a problem. I'm a target now. So, and, and then, so you're mad about the fact that I am producing work that's critiquing the state, critiquing the DOC, critiquing the prison, and then you are going into my property and taking materials that you believe critique the state, critique the DOC, critique the prison, and criticize these things. So I can't produce this work without being punished. And it can't be it can't be sent to me, or you're going to confiscate it. This is that's fascism, you know, and that's what we're dealing with. And I, people need to understand that this is not hyperbole. This is reality, you know. And this is what I'm dealing. People behind the walls we're dealing with, and this is where it's at. It's a creep on to people's consciousness now. We see the creep on people's body, where you can't do what you want to do with your own body. Now you can't even think what you want to think or learn what you want to learn can't do that anymore. So we have to stop this somewhere. You know, we have to, we have to fight this. I really appreciate how Stevie in that clip really clearly breaks down what fascism looks like. Because I think that's often what can like trip people up is that when you look at what's happening in our current political landscape, like fascism is already here, especially in prisons. And so when I think about fascism in our moments, one of the first kind of touchstones that I go to is George Jackson, because I think he really summarized and made quite clear a lot of what we're seeing now is that the U.S. has been a fascist state. He argued since the 1920s and since the Great Depression that the U.S. has been a fascist state. And that means that every sort of revolutionary or transgressive project Every move that is made will receive pushback because the U.S. is a fascist state. And I think you see that really clearly inside of prisons when we're thinking about censorship, to use some of the examples that Stevie named, and the, specifically the criminalization of collectivity. That's something, as Stevie explains, right, any time groups of folks inside are gathering, it's labeled a security threat. That comes from a fear of there being another imprisoned revolutionary like George Jackson, a fear of revolutionary action from within the belly of the beast. And so when we think about what's moving now in our current political conditions, right, I think William C. Anderson really made this clear, like what happens inside of prison ultimately becomes the norm. Pregnant people being shackled when they're giving birth, forced sterilizations, as is pointed out in the piece from the California Coalition for Women Prisoners, Censorship of reading and study materials. 
the attack on bodily autonomy, the attack on consciousness and what people can learn has been happening inside of prisons. And we're seeing that happen outside now. What happened inside is actually coming out. And for me, that's also why no matter what movement you're in or struggle you're, whether it's reproductive justice or PIC abolition, we need to be paying attention to what's happening inside because it will become the norm and it is currently. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dylan. You mentioned forced sterilizations and one of the articles of issue 39, we interviewed California Coalition for Women Prisoners um, or CCWP and they just won a huge campaign, like very, very historic win in um, 2021 where they fought for and won reparations for imprisoned people who were forcibly sterilized by the Department of Corrections in California in prisons for women. Um, So this is a practice that's been happening for a very long time. Um, And, you know, for folks who might not be very aware, the U.S. had literal eugenics programs uh, state to state, and California had one of the largest eugenics programs in in the history of the U.S. Um, and forcibly sterilized people of different genders, different races, different um, ages, but all under this very white supremacist capitalist agenda, of course, that's what eugenics is used to protect um, in different institutions from like Uh, youth prison or juvenile camps and orphanages to hospitals, clinics, mental institutions considered at the time, asylums, etc. And since the 1980s, the California Department of Corrections and so-called rehabilitation has also performed countless uh, procedures that have resulted in the forced sterilization of people in California prisons. Um, And so we actually did a follow-up interview um, with the folks that we interviewed for the issue. For issue 39, we interviewed Diana Block, a co-founder of CCWP, and also one of the organizers on the campaign for reparations. And then we also interviewed Moonlight Pulido with Diana. And Moonlight is formerly imprisoned in CDCR, um, and is a survivor of forced sterilization. And it also was compensated by the state through this reparations win that CCWP obtained. Um, and so in the follow-up interview, um, Moonlight talks a little bit about her experience, what she hopes that people get from reading the, the article in the abolitionist newspaper um, and so, yeah, here's Moonlight. My name is Moonlight Polito, and um, I did 26 years on a life sentence. And um, today I work with California Coalition for Women's Prisons as a representative and an advocate for those that were forcibly sterilized, like myself. And um, my mission with them is to try to reach out and find the people they don't know. I try to find the women that don't know that there is reparations. I've found five people that had no idea that this was even going on. Right before I paroled, 
um, I got a letter from Erica Cohen and um, she was telling me about, it's on YouTube, it's called The Belly of the Beast. And um, she said that it was going to be played on TV somewhere, but I don't watch TV and don't really know the channels and how to figure it out. She said for me to keep in touch. And so after I got out and uh, she started telling me about the governor signing the bill for reparations and how much it was. And I was like, I was just like, whoa, 7.5 million. That's a lot of money. And she was like, well, we anticipate there to be 300 people. And I was like, okay. And everybody was supposed to get 25,000. Everybody that's been approved so far, which has only been 66, has received 15,000. And December is the deadline. They're trying to get that extended to try to help find more people or to give them a little more time. Because a lot of the people that applied didn't get uh, approved because they they had ablations is where they go in and burn your insides, which still leaves you sterilized, or they had partial hysterectomies, which still leaves you sterilized. But when they're when these women are getting denied, they're giving up, and there's an appeal process, and I don't think they know about it, or do they think they're going to win? So they just like never mind, they just chalk it up. You can't. And so what a lot of them don't know is as soon as they're denied, they have 30 days to appeal it. And um, if that appeal gets denied, they can refile the application and try it again. And a lot of them just don't have the, the will or the drive to want to push through again and try it because they think they already feel defeated, you know, and... I'm, I'm so glad that's not me. I, I keep getting up, you know, <laughs> you knock me down. I'm going to keep getting up and trying. And, um, but so hopefully, hopefully they get the, uh, they get that deadline pushed out farther so that they continue to continue to look for more women. But we went through something very traumatic that wasn't spoke about and was pretty much kept to the chest. But what we went through, being victimized after we've been sentenced, we're pretty strong because we're still going forward. I'm just grateful that Creator gave me the strength, the will, and the desire. I, I could have thrown my whole life away. I, I mean, I've had friends commit suicide in there, and I don't know what their reasons were. You know, I've had people purposely OD because they were just tired. What had they gone through? You know, and I don't know if some of those women were sterilized like myself, you know, I'm just grateful for the, the, that I had the strength and that the rest of the women had the strength not to hurt ourselves or hurt anybody else because of what was done to us. I just see us all as warriors and very strong women. So much love for Moonlight and all of our movement family at CCWP. As Moonlight mentioned, the deadline for people to 
submit applications for compensation is December 31st of this year, 2023. So if you are listening from a prison in California and you believe that you qualify for reparations, um, you can request an application from prison staff. Um, you can also write to CCWP and request one. So you would write to them at California Coalition for Women Prisoners, Attention Compensation Program, 4400 Market Street, Oakland, California, 94608. Um, you can also email CCWP at info at womenprisoners.org. You can also contact Critical Resistance, and we will either try to put you in touch with CCWP or send you an application. Dylan, I believe we have time for one or two more questions, so I'm going to pass it back over to you. When I'm thinking about the contemporary struggle for reproductive justice and the struggle for PIC abolition over the past few years, there are two flashpoints that immediately come to mind for me. The first is the summer of 2020 uprisings, and the second is the overturning of Roe v. Wade in June of 2022. So when we look at these struggles, what organizing or movement tendencies are you seeing in particular emerge in the wake of these two high-pitched moments? Yeah, I think it's really interesting to think about 2020. The George Floyd rebellions were some of the largest protests in world history. An estimated 26 million people around the world were in the streets protesting the violence of policing, right? Um, and in solidarity with George Floyd, yes, but also their own experiences of the violence of policing. And um, people hit the streets post-Roe, and there was outrage, there was agitation, there's the ongoing behind the scenes organizing that's been happening that we mentioned. You know, some tendencies that we saw in these two different moments and that we've talked about in the abolitionist editorial collective to an extent um, is that there was actually a lot of unity around the problem in the 2020 rebellions, right? Like people, we were, we were seeing a gelling of alignment around the problems of policing. What creates the problems of policing, right? And how does policing actually operate? What is it designed to do? And it was really exciting to see that there was more alignment um, with that in 2020 than in previous years. Um, I think where there was less agreement is what are the solutions, right? Like, what do we actually do about it? And the needle has moved more away from using reform. But as we've seen from policing being on a deadly rise since 2020, the cops still killing folks, people still protesting it, and a lot of the same reformist reforms um, that just bolster and feed and expand policing are still being called for, but not to the same extent that they were leading up to 2020, right? So I think that that was one dynamic then. I think what's hard around post-Roe reproductive justice, outrage, and calls to defend abortion 
is that one, we're not really understanding the full extent of the problem in the same way that we were um, with George Floyd and the violence of policing. And what I mean by that is that for a lot of people, abortion is just about abortion. It's about, quote unquote, the women's right to choose, and that's it. And um, it's a pretty big hurdle to invite folks who are only thinking on things on that level to seeing like, what is this really about, right? Like we're talking about so many different things on this, on this, um, on this episode, but at the same time, we're not right. Like they're not actually so many different things. Um, and, and we get still really stuck in this single issue mindset, um, rather than moving as our lives are with an intersectional analysis, right? Um, and so those are some of the movement tendencies that we still saw. Like we're still, our movements are still really siloed. Um, and I think that th this all speaks to kind of why we did the issue in the way that we did is it's really an invitation for like, no matter where you're located, no matter what your identity is, no matter um, where you're positioned within racial capitalism or what your experiences of the prison industrial complex are, how are we engaging in questions around reproductive justice, given our conditions, and seeing that if you are for reproductive justice, if you are for women's rights to choose, you're also against the anti-transgender bans. You're also for releasing people from cages and getting rid of prisons, jails, and the cops, right? Um, that's like why we did this issue in the way that we did because of the movement tendencies that we're seeing. And we are still so struggling with the generations and generations and still current use of divide and conquer strategies that like, sorry, y'all, but like, if you're a feminist, you can't keep throwing people under the bus for feminism, right? Like you can't just... Like, we can't just, like, throw away um, queer and trans folks. We also can't throw away cis men, right? <laughs> like, we can't, like, we can't have a throwaway approach in our gender analysis as feminists, right? Um, and so, the, the you know, these, these kinds of sentiments still were emerging in the post-Roe response, um, in, in last summer, in the summer of 2022. Um, and we were, we were watching some of that, but instead of trying to make direct interventions, we instead wanted to invite people into understanding more clearly, what are these intersections between reproductive oppression, reproductive justice, um, the prison industrial complex, and also abolition, right? And invite people to, to make some of these connections for themselves um, based on the really amazing organizing that people are doing, right? Um, people live in the nexus of these issues. That's the whole point of intersectionality, right? And we really focused on inviting organizers who are doing really great work that focuses on dismantling some form of reproductive oppression or gender violence with an abolitionist vision or approach. Um, and so that kind of just speaks to also why we chose to work with the authors and the organizations that we did because of the movement tendencies that we were seeing and what needed to be a part of the conversation right now. 
Yes. Thank you so much, Molly, for making those points. A lot of that analytical work in our paper and in this issue is done in our feature analysis piece. So our feature analysis for this issue was co-authored by Maria Thomas and Ash Williams of Interrupting Criminalization. And as part of this podcast, we did a follow-up interview with Ash Williams. Ash is a Black trans radical doula based in North Carolina. So this is one opportunity where you can learn from Ash and about his work, but we will also be having later this week on Thursday, September 21st, a webinar with some of the contributors from this issue called Our Bodies, Our Freedom, where we'll be getting into more of the analysis and key interventions their articles are making within the issue. So Ash will also be a panelist for this webinar later this week, and Maria Thomas will actually be moderating. So make sure to keep an eye out for that and register on Critical Resistance's website. Yeah, so I really love critical resistance and the work that the abolitionist newspaper seeks to do on the inside and on the outside. Um, and so that, like, that's just first and foremost, I think. Um, and then I also wanted to write because I used to write a lot more often, like critically about the things that are really important to me. And lately writing has been feeling uh, like an intimidating process but I really wanted to commit to this so that I could challenge myself and publish something that I could really be proud of. Um, and something that would also be useful to the interlocutors, the abortion doulas, the reproductive justice organizers, the people outside of the repro movement, people inside places of incarceration. I really wanted to offer something useful. Um, I'm also uh, very comfortable working with Maria and I really admire Maria's commitments to interrupting criminalization and medical industrial complex harm by increasing our awareness of how those systems of oppression enable police and policing to trap us and our possibilities. And so, yeah, it was really exciting to be able to work with Maria, given how I uh, knew that I was like moving into what I would consider a challenging writing process. Um, or yeah, it challenged me in, in good ways, in, in um, generative ways. I think that this is a really important issue. And I think it's really important uh, for the newspaper to like highlight reproductive justice in this way and at this time. As a community organizer, I think I've been pretty consistent, like naming that criminalization is the glue that is holding a lot of issues that are like, that I care about like together or like criminalization is the thing that like um, makes me want to address these things right now, right? And then reproductive justice as a framework, it's the framework that says, I do not have to wait on uh, anything uh, because like we deserve to live free from harm from another motherfucker, from the government, um, from the climate, like, right now from policies, right? From abortion bans, we, we need all of those things right now. We cannot wait, right? I've been a part of other movements that have asked me or us to like wait or like this is not about racial justice or right, this is not about economic justice, but I feel and I know that reproductive justice is really the framework that allows me to like have that urgency right now. And so as I've been someone who really feels like, oh, I've been trying to talk about this for a long ass time, y'all. Um, I'm so excited that uh, it is being talked about more now and not just by me, but by a lot of other really fucking smart people. 
And I'm just happy to like contribute to a, a, a conversation that I think is really important. Gender affirming care like pregnancy care and abortion access, but also like accessing hormone replacement therapy um, and gender affirming medical interventions that trans people like me need to live. Um, this is something else that I've been interested in like talking about and at the same time, right? And with criminalization, um, I've been unwilling to like not name and talk about the implications of criminalization as it relates to the things that I just said. And I haven't always felt that there's a lot of space for that, like both in abolitionist movements and in the reproductive justice movement, right? And these things, these movements are not mutually exclusive. I'm not like trying to say anything too prescriptive about them, but like I need, we re I really need a place to like, we really need a place to talk about all this and criminalization at the same time. And I'm so happy that it's happening now. I think uh, it's happening like by way of what we wrote. And that makes me really excited. And it's happening in a lot of other ways that um, feel good to me. I So when I wrote the piece, I was um, on probation. I was on paper. And when I was doing things and putting things out into the world and like showing up in spaces to talk about criminalization and abortion, I really wanted to be like not leaving that part of my experience like on the side or something. And I also in some ways felt like what I'm saying, if I th I'm urgent about it and I'm more, maybe more urgent about it because like they're on my ass right now. Like the state is on my ass right now, like as it relates to like trying to stop police and policing and like trying to increase abortion access here, there and everywhere. And I appreciate that, like the writing of this piece, like that enabled me um, to be able to do that. I think that um, in some ways I wanted to be uh, also in service to other people who are just as, or even more so justice involved. Um, and I let this piece be a way that like allowed me to question the monumental impact that the system has had on me and my family just recently. When I think about what has been missing from reproductive justice concerns in our current movement post Roe, and I'm thinking about the ways that the RJ movement, it's explicit to be a, a clear that like uh, these abortion bans and restrictions, for example, they like most negatively impact black and brown people. Um, we know that the same is true for criminalization as it's connected to pregnancy criminalization. And so in a lot of ways, right, like our movement needs to take criminalization more seriously, um, surveillance, right? And, and, and this increased repression that I think we are all witnessing. Um, here I'm thinking about um, the criminalization of uh, yeah, like abortion funds and networks and webs of support, like what we're seeing in Atlanta um, with these indictments. I'm thinking about also um, how we can make sure that we're protecting both abortion seekers and workers and the doulas, right? All of the people who are supporting access to abortion. Um, and I know that that means adequately supporting like reproductive care workers. I think like yeah, like being one plus one equals two about it, like pay like is a big deal right now in our movement. We got to get serious about paying the people who've decided to like 
work here uh, like or like this or under these conditions, they have to be paid more adequately um, so that they can really show up for abortion seekers and for pregnant people. Um, and then there is this aspect of like, we need to make sure that abolition is reflected in the programmatic work and long-term visioning within the movement, which means like divesting um, from uh, like divesting of systems and structures that expand the prison industrial complex. Like y'all not even talking about reformatory reforms at this point. I'm thinking about what we saw just this summer with the Supreme Court. Um, some of the response after what we what we saw, what we witnessed was like, okay, we need to try to uh, organize around like term limits and things like this. And I, I here I want to offer like, maybe this is a chance for like repro to pipe up and be like, actually, um, take it from us. Like it's time for all of our movements or many of our movements to actually divest from the Supreme Court, um, but from other systems of oppression, other systems of harm. Again, that was Ash Williams with the Mountain Area Abortion Doula Collective, a Western North Carolina grassroots organization that supports people seeking abortion care and trains abortion doulas using a reproductive justice lens. Another key focus, I'll say for me specifically as an editor for this issue, I remember when we were doing our pitches that it's important to also foreground the South in this and specifically struggles around accessing gender affirming care, struggles for trans liberation as part of like a reproductive justice framework. Because one of the things we've seen um, historically and specifically in this moment due to the onslaught of like anti-trans legislation throughout the South is that the South becomes this key site within the US of fascistic experimentation. And at the same time, as Robin D.G. Kelly has said, the South is one of the most radical places. So for this issue, one of the pieces I coordinated um, was with a group in Arkansas called Intransitive, which is a grassroots organization that works to advance the liberation of transgender people and communities through art, education, advocacy, and organizing in order to create long-term effective systemic change. And so what their work really focused on and what their article talks a lot about is just this onslaught of like anti-trans legislation at the state level that they were facing and how they were organizing um, folks, trans folks in their communities to resist this legislation. And one of the ways they did this was through their Defend Autonomy campaign. Um, and this really mobilized folks across the state of Arkansas and organizations across movements to really try to create a united front in defense of bodily autonomy and created on uniting a few resources and organizations to collectively build the infrastructure that's needed to fight the state, to fight these bills that are advancing throughout their legislature. So make sure to check out that article when you're looking through this issue of the Abbey. I think it's a really great piece um, and a really important piece and also important to ground ourselves in the grassroots organizing work that's currently happening throughout the South as folks, whether it's like radical doulas like Ash or folks that are part of other organizations and collectives are fighting back against the fascism we're seeing in the South and the attack on bodily autonomy and reproductive justice. Yeah, thanks so much, Dylan. Um, I have a question for you now. Are you ready? I'm ready, Molly. What is it? What's your favorite article of issue 39? Ooh, okay. That's a hard question. I do think this is one of my favorite issues that we've I've worked on in the past three years. I've been a part of the project. Mine too. And yeah. 
And so there are many like strong pieces that I think really explore the intersection of abolition and reproductive justice. And then one of our goals really in each of our issues and really the goal of the project more broadly is thinking about how we practice internationalism and how we bring that in through our content. And so one of the pieces that I didn't coordinate and wasn't the point person for on the editorial collective, but when I was reading through it, I think really resonated with me and I learned a lot was a piece on the budding and revolutionary struggle for liberation in Iran, which was written by Azadeh Zorabi and Targul Mespa. And so I was actually able to have a follow-up conversation with Targul um, that we can, we're about to play for y'all, where she really clearly kind of breaks down how abolition has been a useful framework in the wake of protests following the murder of Gina Amini and what and how abolition is being used in this context. Interestingly, we're just about to coincide with the one year anniversary of the uprising. Um, so it's, I, it's hard for me to believe that it's been a year. Uh, September 16th was the, uh, 2022 was the day that a young woman by the name of Gina Amini was murdered by the Islamic Republic of Iran. Um, she was a Kurdish Iranian woman who was visiting Tehran uh, from her province uh, in Kurdistan. Um, and she was part of many people, many women who were detained by um, the morality police, as they're called, who they're a segment of the government who basically police populations and specifically targeting women, but not exclusively, I would say, but, but primarily um, to make sure that they are observing what the state deems to be proper Islamic hijab or a, a way of composing yourself with modesty, which is what hijab means, actually. And this has been a very significant uh, point of resistance for women in, the, in, in Iran for the past 40 years, which is um, how long this government has been um, in power. And um, the, in, in the aftermath of Gina Amini's murder, there were really significant uprisings across the country, mainly led by women and uh, youth, but not exclusively. I think what, was, what we saw as a very significant feature of this particular uprising, there have been others you know, in the last four decades. What's been significant is the broad coalition of folks who, have, who see their struggles as connected. So there was a joint statement that was issued by labor unions and different civic organizations that basically were linking gender oppression, economic oppression, uh, exploitation of labor, land, environmental issues, all of them together and sort of uh, issued a list of demands um, that made these connections really, really explicit. Now, almost a year after this, period of uprising and, and severe state crackdown on protesters, mass arrests, torture, executions, mass exe like um, a significant amount of people being executed in recent months. Um, and disproportionately also 
focused on uh, Kurdish populations and Baluchi populations, not exclusively, but these are minorities in uh, minority populations, ethno-linguistic populations in Iran. What we're seeing as a ramp up to the anniversary is, is a further state uh, entrenchment, you know, in the in surveilling and restricting everyday lives of people and arresting um, journalists, human rights workers, just anybody who has any kind of dissent, voices any kind of dissent is being detained at the moment. So it's pretty dramatic. It's actually, it's interesting when, 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 I'm, when I speak about what's going on in Iran, I'm, I'm very aware of how extreme the situation is um, and really trying to be specific about what's happening without over sensationalizing because it, it feels so, it is so severe. It's absolutely so severe. And yet it's become so normalized. And it's this really strange contradiction. It's an intensification, severe intensification of something that has been going on for a long time. So it's both continuous and discontinuous, right? And also we can see it in other parts of the world. It's not just in Iran right now. There's an intensification of authoritarianism um, as economic conditions are becoming more difficult for more and more people in the world and also the environmental pressures of climate change and how that affects people's daily lives in terms of access to shelter, water, livable temperatures. Um, and these are actually you know, very alive uh, issues in Iran right now. There's very difficult economic conditions. Inflation is exorbitant. Most people can't afford to buy basic food items that you know they've been taking for granted as accessible. Uh, drought, um, excessive heat. The, the state is very aware that you know people are going to be mobilizing for the anniversary of of Gina Amini's death. So there is this crackdown that's intensifying. And there's also a lot of international solidarity around organizing events um, in recognition and in resistance to the state repression. Yeah, right on. I think another one of my favorite pieces from this issue was the co-authored piece on the family regulation, more accurately family policing system written by Aaron Miles Cloud and Lisa Sangoy. Yeah. They really break down how this is an area of the prison industrial complex that hasn't gotten as much attention, but their organization movement for family power is really organizing um, folks specifically like black women and caretakers around abolishing the family policing system. Yeah, absolutely. And Lisa Sangoy is also going to be at the webinar on Thursday, September 21st, um, repping movement for family powers work. Um, so a great opportunity to, to check out um, more what this important organization is doing. And their piece on family policing is also available already on our website. If you go to criticalresistance.org slash the dash abolitionist, you can find past issues um, as well as sneak peeks, early release articles from each issue that we uh, put online for public download and circulation before the issue goes to print. So we released the family policing article back in, I think, May leading up to Mother's Day um, before we went to print in June. So definitely check it out before coming to the webinar later this week. 
Um, some of my other favorite pieces were actually your poem. You and another CR member, Rahana, wrote a really great uh, poem that was like based on like a found poem and these interviews with um, parents and you know, early childcare providers um, and birth workers to imagine what coming earthside or being born once we abolish the PIC um, could maybe look like. And yeah, I thought it was really dope. Thank you for that work. Thanks, Molly. And yeah, shout out Rahana, another member of the editorial collective, had so much fun working together and writing that poem. Another piece that I thought was really great in this issue was written by the Feminist Collective Under Construction, which is a political organization in Puerto Rico that grounds their work in a Black decolonial feminist politic. And was the organization was founded in 2014. And what I really appreciated about their work is they kind of show how historically in Puerto Rico and like the onset and creation of like contraceptions and how that was tested on poor Puerto Rican women fits into a larger colonial project and how when we think about body autonomy and reproductive justice, how it's linked to legacies of colonialism and a larger colonial project and a colonial project that starts at our bodies and then expands. So I thought yeah. that was a really strong piece. Yeah. I also really loved the Inside Outside Fishing Line, this issue. So we have a column called the Inside Outside Fishing Line where we partner an inside organizer with an outside organizer to exchange ideas or have a conversation about a political topic. We had a conversation with Mapuche indigenous political prisoners in Argentina, who at the time of the article were under house arrest as repression for organizing that they were doing around reclaiming their land. Um, and I really loved that piece because it talked about the impacts of house arrest on indigeneity and family and particularly indigenous children. The struggle between the state and Argentina oppressing indigenous people also was coming to a pitch at that time. So it was a way for us to introduce for readers less familiar with what's going on in Argentina with the Mapuche struggle. Um, but also what we're seeing in the U.S. is a rise or an increase in calls for electronic monitoring or expansions of what are house arrest um, as a reform to prisons and jails. Um, and so it was just really important, especially in this issue, to talk about the impacts of when the prison industrial complex turns your home into a cage. All right, folks, we're at the end of our first episode of Over the Wall. If you enjoyed today's conversation about reproductive justice and prison industrial complex abolition, please do be sure to join us on Thursday, September 21st for Our Bodies, Our Freedom, Abolishing the Prison Industrial Complex Post-Row. From 3.30 to 5.30 Pacific, 5.30 to 7.30 Central, or 6.30 to 8.30 Eastern. We'll be having a conversation with Maria Thomas, Ash Williams, Azadeh Zarabi, Lisa Sangoy, and others, all contributors of Issue 39. It's on Zoom. Go to our website, criticalresistance.org slash events for the link to register. We hope this conversation inspires folks to subscribe to our paper. New issues of The Abolitionist come out twice per year. 
and has already been mentioned, our next issue, which will be coming out this December, will be focusing on control units. Subscriptions, both for individuals and organizations, are sliding scale, but are absolutely essential to providing this political resource for free to folks in cages throughout the U.S. Each subscription from a supporter on the outside allows us to provide a corresponding copy of the issue to a reader inside for free. Single subscriptions of $10 per year provide one copy to a reader inside, which can then be shared with other prisoners, so please do donate if you are able. As a project goal, the Abolitionist Newspaper Editorial Collective is aiming to get 100 new subscribers inside of women's facilities. So if you run or participated in an inside-outside letter-writing program, organizing project, or have a loved one inside that you think would be interested in reading our paper, head over to the Critical Resistance website to sign them up to become a subscriber and receive a free copy of the paper biannually. Yeah.